Revelation, it speaks of the unveiling, uh, uh, a human instrument God used to bring this truth, you know, from the very, you know, uh, rooms of heaven to humanity, uh, a person by the name of the Apostle John. John at this time is in his mid-90s. He is in exile on the island of Patmos. It's a rocky island in the Aegean Sea southwest of Ephesus. He was there exiled um, by the Roman ruler Domitian. And now John will be in exile until Domitian dies. And then John will return to the church at Ephesus and pastor the Ephesian church until his departure. John receives this revelation, this unveiling of Jesus from an angel as well as from Jesus himself. And the letter, as we looked at last week, has a, has a key verse to understanding the chronology and the content of the, of the book, of the letter. The key is found in Revelation 1.19, where John is instructed to write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. So we're at verse 19 what he had seen up to this, you know, in regards to this vision, this experience he's having there on this island of exile. So write that. Write the things which will take place after, or the things which are. So he's seen a few things, and then there's some things that are just are happening and unfolding, and then he's going to be told something, something's going to take place after that. So many hold to the simplicity that the things which are, it's, it's the things of the church. And the things that will take place after that are the things after the, the, the reference to the church. Chapter 4, verse 1, after these things. So after chapter 2 and 3, then it's between the end of chapter 3 and the start of chapter 4, verse 1, the church is removed, taken up to be with him, raptured. And then that enters into this next chronology. And that's where you're going to see some of the, you know, the wrath of the Lamb poured out on humanity. And it's what actually draws people, weird way that it draws people to the book of Revelation. Like, what's all that stuff going on? And we've seen it. This is our third week, fourth study in this. The book is about Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. And when we're digging in, we want to have our hearts set. I want to know more about Jesus Christ. That's my goal. That's my desire. That's the purpose of this book. It reveals some things that are going to unfold with this other person. But it's all about him, and so it's an unveiling um, of, of Jesus. Now, on Sunday, we went over chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 7. In verses 1 through 7, you know, we've seen uh, Jesus commend and encourage and correct the church that was in Ephesus. As, as we are going to go to, verse, or to the second church in this list, we want to realize that, you know, the, the letters were to seven churches, and it speaks of, you know, um, the complete church. As we read this, we want to realize there's a specific application for those who met at the time this was written. They, they were actually physical churches. Smyrna is about 40 miles north, which at the time, Ephesus and Smyrna were actually at coastline, but, you know, water levels and such have changed that. And anyway, so it was about 40 miles north. And that has a, spe- that has a specific application. And there's a parallel in the history of the church as well, as I mentioned last week. The first era church, Ephesus, you see from the resurrection, what we would see as the 
expression of the church. I don't call it the birth of the church because ecclesia gets into another thing. I think it's always been in God's mind, of course. But anyway, the resurrection up to the last events recorded in the book of Acts historically. So as the, that gap of time, 100 plus years, we could see, um, that was a time towards the end of it that the church was becoming religious, setting programs, developing systems, and inadvertently turning from their first love, Jesus. That's why we seen last week, it was, you know, I have this against you, you have left your first love. Isn't it fascinating how fast that can happen? That even in that first century, when there was so much excitement, so much personal, physical experience, some had seen the risen Lord, some had talked to the people and the apostles that were with them. There was a lot that we would think, man, it would be different if I could have this face-to-face engagement and this you know, connection. But if you think about it, that's just your physical senses that, that are, are reacting to that. Well, anyway, we have that first era. Then the next era, the church Smyrna, which we'll look at tonight, was the persecuted church, roughly from 100 to 330 AD. It's estimated that approximately 6 million Christians were martyred during this era. It's, it's one of the worst in a sense of the Roman Empire at that point. The, the rulers were really so ego-oriented and so stuck on themselves. They thought they were gods. And therefore, they thought everybody under them should worship them. And if you didn't worship them, then they just brutally killed you. And even on public display. So, that's where we're setting up. One last reminder. These chapters speak of seven churches that were meeting at the time. John experienced this unveiling, this revelation of Jesus. In the Bible, the number seven speaks of completeness. So the emphasis is that Jesus is speaking to his complete church, to the complete church, all believers that have met and still meet in his name. So we see it's churches, it's not meant to be limited as some perceive, for that was back then. No, it's preserved, spoken of in plurality, for us to understand and to take hold of. And so in reading about the seven churches, the complete church, we should have this consideration because it helps us process this. There was the geographical church I just referenced that took place in in these areas. There was the historical church, which is those eras and those epochs that you can study and we'll work our way through as we go through. So there's the geographical, the historical, the present church, which is now at this time. And I like to think of it also as the person in church, which is personal consideration. So when I read about Ephesus and was even preparing last week to share on Sunday, you know, there's a conviction. of Have I left my first love? Am I just doing ministry because I've been doing it long enough to keep doing it and I feel like I know what I'm doing while I'm doing it? Or am I actually doing it because of love? You see, so as we go through, you're going to see even tonight there's some things that are relevant. Each of the seven churches are instructed to listen to what God has to say. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Maybe you remember what Jesus said about the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. I'll read to you out of John 14, 25. Jesus speaking to his disciples, these things I have spoken to you while present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance the things I have said. So the person indwelling us in this this triunity of God, 
God in the person of the Holy Spirit, he indwells us, and it says that Jesus said that he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance the things I have said. So remember, we're going to read through Revelation, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And there's an application for you personally, even privately. We also know from the ministry of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, verse 13, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you, all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Jesus speaking here about the role of the Holy Spirit, recognizing the will of the Father. You know, so we have the triunity of God right here in this description of what the Holy Spirit would do in our lives. And, and he will guide us into all truth. You know, it says that you know, he will speak to you and he'll tell you things to come. Understand this, when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, it correlates, it synchronizes, and it's clearly from the, the contextual word of God. Why do I have to say contextual? Well, because many people have taken passages and portions and made it their, their trumpet, their, their, their charge sound, and done very contrary and horrible things, all given credit to God, which functionally they're blaming God for their Ill, acted, Ill activity. So we want to know. I, want, I know I want the Holy Spirit to lead. I want him to speak. We want to know what he's saying to us. I know that's a lot for intro, but you're going to see the relevance to it as we move now to Revelation 2, beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The, the persecuted church, and let's begin there in verse 8 as drawing from what we've gained from chapter 1 and 2 and descriptions. The angel, we know we're told those are the stars, the angel of messengers, uh, even the pastor. So he's saying to the, to the church in Smyrna, Smyrna was located along the um, Aegean coast, 40 miles north of Ephesus. The Aegean Sea um, is connected to the Mediterranean Sea, it's towards the top portion, central, and then it's just south of the Black Sea. So that it, you can get your, your contemporary maps, like I mentioned last week, you can get some to, to overlay, or you can see, why do I say that? A lot of your Bibles have them, correct? If we learn to utilize the sources that are in our hands, we can look at that, and it gives you kind of an understanding, and you can even kind of watch what some of the contemporary things that are happening. Now, Smyrna was second in size to Ephesus, it was a large, influential city at that time, uh, presented itself as the glory of Asia. And what's interesting, it was steeped in idolatry, worshiping anything but the living God, all kinds of things. And they were known as a beautiful, clean, pleasant city, 
yet it was the hub of this idolatry and false worship. It's really we're going to be the kind of a center pit or a hinge pin, if you would, later as the Roman Empire, they, they try to grasp and hold their power as they're in decline. And so the, the Caesars, the rulers, will go and hub, so to speak, they'll, they'll go to this worship center and all the idolatry will be right there in the area of Smyrna. It says that, in, as you continue in that verse 8, first and last speaks of the one who was dead and came to life. We know it has a similar uh, intro, if you would, to um, previously in uh, the, the gospel or in this letter uh, in chapter 1, speaking of his eternity, of his authority, of who he is. He's saying, I was dead and I came to life. We have a term for that, right? Resurrection. It speaks of his victory and his authority. Uh, let me read to you um, John 11. In John 11, there's a, a family that knew Jesus really well. And he, he often stayed with them when he came come into the area. And the brother of the, of the group, there was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Well, Lazarus had died. And they sent message to Jesus, but it seemed that Jesus got there a little late. And uh, late enough that, as is common in those cultures, they, they buried him. They bury within a day sometimes, or just over a day. And so Lazarus is placed in a tomb. And Jesus comes, and he says to, to Martha... You know, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You know, so she's saying, okay, I realize in eternity or later, yeah, it's it all going to take place. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, do you see the central point to the, to the gospel is the resurrection. If Jesus, and he was a good teacher, a moral leader, a compassionate guide, a, a very wonderful person, you read about him, you, you have to, if you just believe he's a human and not, not God in human form, you have to admire how he handles adversity, how he builds a team, how he reaches people. But if all, that's, all that happens... There's no power. He's just another person who lived a good life, passed away. And we see from the Gospels, you know, that this is the central thing. This is the point. He rose from the dead. And so we see even, you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is the one thing I want you to know. Jesus Christ crucified, risen from the dead on the third day. And now we find here Jesus speaking after the resurrection. Now, in John 11, that's prophetic. We understand that. Because the history of John 11, okay, I'm gonna, this is not too complex, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is before the cross. And so he makes this statement that I'm going to rise, so there's going to be a resurrection. Oh, yeah, 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 I get it later. Lazarus will, you know, no, 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 no. I am the resurrection and the life. And so then they go for some time, and then there's this horrible series of events with his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, with his arrest, with his brutal beating at the hands of the Romans, with his once again betrayal and the false accusations and the lies stated about him by the Jews, and, and then that this terrible, torturous 
nailing to the cross. And then poking a spear in his side to make sure he's dead. And then taking that limp and lifeless body, blood-soaked and dried blood and sweat and all, all this, taking it down and putting it in a tomb and closing the sealing the tomb off. You sealed it off because you know he's dead. It's done. It's over. It's finished. Now what do we do? And then what happens? The word comes out. He's risen. He's not there. He has risen from the dead. And so it, it, it shows as we see this story and even Jesus reminding you and me, he's the first and the last. He never quits reminding us he's victorious over our greatest fear. The, the, only, the, the adversary that we don't even understand half the time, who wants to steal, kill, and destroy, he has conquered. And, and that's not like will conquer, might work out fine in the end, it's done. More than conquerors, he calls you and I in Christ. So something that we're familiar with, you know, I don't know how you are, maybe I belabor it because of my tendencies. When I see something familiar, I already know it, so I move on to something I don't know. That's not a good thing. It's a good thing to back up and go, wow, why does he say that again? Second time in this chapter, or in this letter. He's putting the emphasis upon his authority and his victory and the life that he offers to you and me. He goes on to say there in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 2, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. We're seeing it. We've seen it. I titled our Sunday message, I Know You. We're seeing it again in this letter or this church. I know your works. I know you. And that, he's actually commending them. He's, he's recognizing, I, I know what you're going through, the works. He, I know what you're, 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 how you're laboring along, and it's not easy. You know, it's easy becoming a Christian. It's hard to live a life that honors God. Agreed? We don't do things to become a Christian. He's done everything. All, it's finished. Everything necessary for our salvation has been accomplished by his, his death and resurrection. We receive it as a gift that we don't deserve. Unmerited favor, we receive this life. We receive the victory he accomplishes as the resurrection and the life. So it's, 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 a, it's of no cost to us in one sense. But don't, get me, don't misunderstand, it costs you everything too. You can't say, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to live this life to its fullest, and then when I die, I'll deal with this Jesus stuff. That's contrary. You're going to see even. He's saying, I know your works. I know how hard it is. I understand you're trying to have an impact in your community. I understand you're trying to be kind and compassionate with your family. I know your works. And man, I tell you, I can't emphasize it enough. For us to realize that intimate and personal relationship we have with Jesus Christ, and that he knows what we're going through. We don't have a high priest that somehow is elevated by theory and thought and some form of religious expression, but Hebrews tells us we have a high priest that sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows exactly what we're going through. And man, to know that, it makes me wonder how it is that I fulfill the song. Oh, what needless pain I bear. All because I will not carry everything to him in prayer. He's like, man, why do I, why do I make this so hard? He's telling, I know your works. 
I know your tribulations, he, he, the trials. That's not speaking of the specific event of the great tribulation. It's once again, as we see even in other passage in this letter, it's the trials, the adversity, the struggles. I know what you're going through. I'm, I'm very familiar with them. I know your poverty, though you're rich. You know, being a Christian in many cases puts you uh, kind of at odds. You know, some salesmen who sell things, they sell a lot better because their techniques are different. You ever heard the statement, you know, used car salesman, you're not thinking trust, right? Do you, do you guys, is that conjure? I, mean, I hope there's no car salesman here tonight, but it doesn't, it doesn't go, you know, I, I'm just trying to figure out my life. I'm going to go find a used car salesman and ask him his opinion. You know, I'm not trying to, I'm getting in a lot of trouble, but that's familiar ground. But so it's like, there, there, there's some people that you know, they, they know how to work the system. And they know how to sell more. And they're not restricted by some form of ethics and morality. They, have, they, they push the envelope. They push it around. But you and I don't get to do that. Because we're going to go home, we're going to go to bed, and we're going to be deeply convicted that we bumped that price up way more than we should have to pocket our own account. And we're going to be convicted, and there's going to be times you're just not going to, you're just not going to get promotion because of your convictions and what you hold to be and hold to do. And, and because you won't speak and cuss like some do, you're going to be off and out of the edge and not accepted. And, and, and that's just simple things. In this world, you know, there's times that, you know, and, and don't ever use physical holdings as a measure of spirituality because that's a judgment you don't have the business to pass. Physical holdings do not measure spirituality in any way. I've met some really wealthy people that love the Lord, and I've met some really poor people that are very poor in spirit. You see what I'm saying? It it doesn't measure. But recognize you don't measure that way either. As a Christian, I don't measure by my bank account. I don't measure by my acquisitions or assets. And so when he's saying, I know your poverty... Though you're rich, you know I've shared this before, but it's such a uh, application here. Going to India, I was, I've been able to go several times and be in the slums and be in you know very impoverished areas and be in areas where literally they have enough rice for maybe a couple of days, and that's their food. That's it. And they don't have any more. And we go to visit them, and they're all aglow. They've got, a, they've got these beautiful white teeth and the darker complexion, and they're just, they're aglow. And it's not just because of their, their physical attributes. It's because they just have this joy of the Lord. And they see us as these people coming from America that God is, quote, blessed because we have more stuff. And you encounter them, and you go, you got a wealth that I don't know. You have a richness in relationship. You have a richness in your walk with Lord, the Lord because you have to depend every day, every day on the most basic of necessities. And it's now your normal practice. It's your confidence. Your engagement with the Lord, your daily relying on the Lord has developed an experience with the Lord that you know the faithfulness of the Lord. And you're like, wow. You, know, you look at them, you go, man. So really you can kind of see that's what he's presenting. I know your poverty. You ain't got much stuff but you're really rich. You're really, really rich. You know, and we, we realize that as we mature and grow. We see also in this first verse, or, we're, or second verse we're breaking down, um, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
It's those who say they are one thing, but they are the evil opposite. So Jesus, to the Jews, you remember they confronted him in a couple different places. I think it's in uh, uh, John 8, where in more detail. But he says, if you knew my father, you would know me. Instead, (laughs) you know your father, the devil, for you lie like he does. I'm paraphrasing. and, And they're like, they got really uptight. Because he's basically saying, you know, you're every bit a son of Satan and you call yourself sons of Abraham. But if you were sons of Abraham, you would know me because you remember what he said to them? Before Abraham was, I am. And that popped their gasket because he's making this association. But he does say to them, you know, the Jewish leaders remember this. They lied about Jesus. They murdered him. They were more of a synagogue of Satan than a servant of Jehovah. And so Jesus is making known to the persecuted church, because that continued, much of the early perse- most of the early persecution actually came at the hands of the Jews, even as we see in Jesus' own life. It wasn't the Romans that were looking for him. It was the Jews who had their hands tied concerning capital punishment. So they couldn't capture Jesus, make a false charge, and then exercise their desired penalty. They had to get approval, authority, and okay from the, Jew, from the, from the Romans. And so he's making this point. Of, the Jews, they lied. I get it. I mean, it had to be encouraging when you're in that moment and you're going through that, and it seems like everything's against you. The Jews are against you and the Romans are against you. And the persecution is intense. As I said, you know, by most historical accounts... Over six million people were martyred in the most brutal of ways because they were Christian. No other reason. Just because they wouldn't renounce Christ and say, I bow to Caesar. Caesar is my Lord. They would not say that because they wouldn't say it. They died for it. Jesus is saying to this church of Smyrna, and I believe it applies to the church in all ages and to you and I, concerning tribulations and enemies, I know. I know, you know, uh, false accusations, statements made about you, statements done, things, you know, we don't have it in this sense. We'll look at some things here in a little bit, but we still are going to face it personally. If you're living for the Lord, you're in a battle. Now, sometimes we're in a battle because we say mean things and people fight back. Seriously. And then we go, oh, I'm being martyred for Jesus. No, you need to shut up sometimes and be quiet and stop being an obnoxious, irritating human that's using the Bible to, to justify your antagonism. You, you need to be like humble before the Lord and serve. And in doing that, you still will probably face some persecution, but it's a different thing when you're truly honoring God as opposed to when we're Following our own agenda, he says in verse 10, do not fear, do not fear. And he's really speaking of do not fear any of the, he says any of those things which you are about to suffer. You can, if you're an American in contemporary times and like you're alive right now, you may want to just cross out that whole next section because it doesn't fit American belief about Christianity. American belief about Christianity is oriented around comfort, excessive provision, and smooth life. And if you don't think so, just look back in your life and see where there's times when it got really bad and our first default is, God, why are you doing this to me? 
And I wonder if God should say, why not? What's so special about you that you should not be purified by this process of persecution? Why should you be exempt because you live in America in 2000 or the last couple hundred years? Why should you not experience and understand the many things that historically for 2,000 years people have went through? Why should we be exempt? I don't think we should be. And especially if we move on here in a little bit, we'll see what it produces. I want to catch, we have, I want to spend a little time. I know it's a lot of verses, but it's really important to, to balance this out. You didn't, you didn't pick, you didn't get to go just before you're born or at some point, you know, before you're like out of the womb. You didn't get to select what point in human history you're going to live. There wasn't no pre-birth form. You know what I'm saying? That you filled out like, I would like to be around 2000. Nobody would put 2020 if they knew anything, but I would like to be like, you know, in this range, on this continent, in this area of the continent, in this socioeconomic place. There's no form for that. We're just here. So we can't guilt ourselves like, oh, we're so terrible of people. We are who we are. We're where we are. But we can recognize what Scripture says and be willing for that to be applied to our lives. And we can, we can see that in Matthew Chapter 10, if you'll turn there with me. Matthew chapter 10. I'm not going to expound much on this, but I am going to read it. We're going to begin in verse 16. I believe it's relevant to today. We have seen things happen in two years that if somebody would have said in December of November of 2019... Do you realize by the end of January 2022, this is what will have taken place globally. This is the liberties that will be taken. This is the citizenship rights that will be violated globally. If somebody said, this is what's going to happen, you would have said, are you reading National Enquirer again? Are you in the Globe, the Star? Where are you getting this bunk? But it, it, it wouldn't have made the tabloid headlines two years ago, and it's the actual facts today. What I'm saying is, we are not noticing things are accelerating. We're like a frog in lukewarm water, just swimming around and ribbing it. I guess ribbit, 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 you know. But the heat's turning up, and we ain't going to jump out because we're so used to this, what we think's okay. But there's things coming. It may not happen in my lifetime. I think it'll happen soon, <laughs> very soon. But, you know, you take your own view on prophecy. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus is saying to his church, to his apostles, to his people, then and carrying on until the church is removed, this principle is true. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. This will challenge your perception about the character of Jesus Christ. He just said he's going to send you into a battlefield, and you're equipped with wool. <laughs> That's all you got. You know, you don't have, you know what I mean? It's not like, I'm going to send you out as an as a offspring of the Lion of Judah. He's like, all right, I'm going to tear somebody up. No, you're going out as a sheep among wolves. That's, what this, that's how we are in this world. And that just, that goes against our like, yeah, I can do it for Jesus mentality. This is what the Bible says. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. You have a purpose. 
You will be persecuted. There will be great harm. There will be severe pain. And notice what it says in verse 18, a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Your life will speak of God's presence, and he will allow certain things to come into your life for purposes beyond the carnal mind to grasp. Eternal things will be taking place in our lives, reaching people in ways we don't even know. I would ask you, because this was posed to me some years ago, and it's a processing question, you know, as a Christian, if you were in a place of employment or you're in a situation that you're constantly ridiculed and continually put down, and you had to do that for 25 years. But on the 26th year, those who have worked alongside you or have known you through that difficulty put their faith in Christ because of your testimony. If you were given the opportunity, knowing the end result, would you say from the start, I don't want to do that, can I do something else? If the Lord says, this, this is the lot I have for you. This is the difficulty, this is the infirmity, this is the pain you're gonna carry. But don't be afraid, because I will carry you. Paul said, when he said about this thorn in the flesh that he carried, he said, Lord, you know, three times he petitioned before the Lord, could you take this away? And the Lord said, Paul, I love you. And it's in your weakness that you rely upon me. And Paul basically said, I will glory in my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Realizing it's because of his presence in the most difficult and painful parts of his life that he's seen the faithfulness of God and the strength of God. When we got something else to rely on, the path of least resistance, that theory, that principle, pushes us to the easier way. But it doesn't take us where we need to go. And so as we see from this passage, continuing on in verse 19, when they deliver, not hip, but when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Remember what Jesus said about the work of the Spirit? He will guide you into all truth. And it says here, in the moment you need it, he'll be there with you, and you'll consciously see it, you'll know it. Brother will deliver up brother to death. A father is child, and children... We've seen this in, since 2020. Will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. We haven't seen the put to death part in America, but there's a thing that's an odd, odd statement, a weird description, and a bizarre movement. It's called cancel culture. So if you don't get along with somebody, or if there's an opportunity to grow and work through a confrontation or a difficulty, you choose not to do that. You actually excommunicate. In other words, you eliminate communication. And you find some justifiable woke reason to be able to say, this is why we no longer engage or connect. It's your fault. You know what I mean? It's, just, it's, it's really bizarre. But it's really, you see how that fits? This is what Jesus has said. And you'll be hated by all for my namesake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in the city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. Remember, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more would they call those of his household? They called Jesus Lord of the Flies. And I'll let you think through what that all speaks of as far as dung and various things and what that implies. So what are they going to call you? Much worse. 
That's what he's saying. If they, if they said that of me, of the master, what will they say about the students? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Once again, I'll mention what Jesus said. I know. I know. I, I know those marital strife where one presents something publicly and is totally different privately. He goes, I know. I know. They fake it. I know. I know that person who's spreading lies about you on social media, and I know what's going on. I know. I know. And there's no greater comfort than to know he knows the God of all justice, the God of love and hope, who will bring mercy and compassion upon his enemies, but will also deal with things judicially and perfectly. It's pretty powerful, actually, if you think about it. You can read on, you know, see... Time to figure out where to stop on this because it just keeps going. So you can just dig in on more. I'd say you go clear through um, verse 39. I'll read it. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. You could gain the whole world. What does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? What is it? Pursuing all these things and we, I got them. Guess what it costs you? Too much. Everything. So. Let's move back. I, that all came from the verse 10 of Revelation in, there in chapter 2 where he said, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil's about to throw you in prison. And we looked at all that. It carries us to verse 11. But before we go there, I do want to read a portion because we see also at the end of verse 10, Be faithful until death. Be faithful until death. In other words, you don't know how long this particular suffering or trial or persecution will be. But there will be another one. There'll be another situation come up. Something's going to happen because there's a process of purifying taking place in your life and it comes through persecution. I want to read to you about the pastor of Smyrna. Have you heard of a man historically known as Polycarp? Referred to as Bishop Polycarp, but I just think of him as Pastor Polycarp because I think it is more accurate. But anyway, let me give you a David Gusick capsulized um, the last days of his life and the story many of you have heard. Polycarp was in a, a remarkable example of both the persecution and courage of early Christians. The year after Polycarp returned from Rome, a great persecution came upon the Christians of Smyrna. His congregation urged him to leave the city until the threat blew over. So, believing that God wanted him to be around a few more years, Polycarp left the city and hid out on a farm belonging to some Christian friends. One day, on the farm, as he prayed in his room, Polycarp had a vision of his pillow engulfed in flames. He knew what God said to him and calmly told his companions, I see that I must be burnt at the stake. Meanwhile, the chief of police issued a warrant for his arrest. They seized one of Polycarp's servants and tortured him until he told them where his master was. Towards evening, the the police chief and a band of soldiers came to the old farmhouse. When the soldiers found him, they were embarrassed to see that they had come to arrest such an old, frail man. They reluctantly put him on a donkey and walked him back to the city of Smyrna. On the way to the city, the police chief and other government officials tried to persuade Polycarp to offer a a pinch of incense before a statue of Caesar and simply say Caesar is Lord. That's all he had to do, and it would be off the hook. 
They pleaded with him to do it and escape the dreadful penalties. At first, Polycarp was silent. But then he calmly gave them his firm answer, no. The police chief was now angry. Annoyed with the old man, he pushed him out of his carriage and onto the hard ground. Polycarp, bruised but resolute, got up and walked the rest of the way into the arena. The horrid games at the arena had already begun in earnest, and a large, bloodthirsty mob gathered to see Christians tortured and killed. One Christian named Quintus boldly proclaimed himself a follower of Jesus and said he was willing to be martyred. But when he saw the vicious animals in the arena, he lost his courage and agreed to burn the pinch of incense to Caesar as Lord. Another young man, Germanicus, didn't back down. He marched out, faced the lions, and died an agonizing death for his Lord Jesus. Ten other Christians gave their lives that day, but the mob was unsatisfied. They cried out, away with the atheists who do not worship our gods. To them, Christians were atheists because they did not recognize the traditional gods of Rome and Greece. Finally, the crowd started chanting, bring out Polycarp. When Polycarp brought his tired body into the arena, he and other Christians heard a voice from heaven. It said, be strong, Polycarp, play the man. As he stood before the proconsul, they tried one more time to get him to renounce Jesus. The proconsul told Polycarp to agree with the crowd and shout out away with the atheists. Polycarp looked sternly at the bloodthirsty mob waved his hands toward them and said, away with those atheists. The proconsul persisted, take the oath and revile Christ and I'll set you free. Polycarp answered, for 86 years I've served Jesus. How dare I now revile my king? The proconsul finally gave up and announced to the crowd that the crime of the accused, Polycarp has confessed he is a Christian. The crowd shouted, let the lions loose but the animals had already been put away. The crowd then demanded that Polycarp be burnt. The old man remembered the dream about the burning pillow and took courage in God. He said to his executioners, It is well. I fear not the fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. Why do you delay? Come do your will. That's a pretty bold guy, would you <laughs> Confident in the Lord. They arranged a great pile of wood and set up a pole in the middle. As they tied Polycarp to the pole, he prayed, I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I may receive a portion in the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ. After he prayed and gave thanks to God, they set the wood ablaze. A great wall of flame shot up to the sky, but it never touched Polycarp. God set a hedge around him between him and the fire. Seeing that he would not burn, the executioner, in a furious rage, stabbed the old man with the long spear. Immediately, streams of blood gushed from his body and seemed to extinguish the fire. When this happened, witnesses said they saw a dove fly up from the smoke into heaven. At the very same moment, a church leader in Rome named Irenaeus said he heard God say to him, Polycarp is dead. God called his servant home. He was the pastor of the church we're reading about here in Smyrna. So, wrapping up our study... Verse 11, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, Hearing involves willingness, hunger, and humility. Um, I don't think this is Harry Beecher, it's H.W. Beecher. I'm going to read this one twice. 
it, it's got a kind of a humorous tilt to it. Talking about hearing and sermons and messages going forward. The churches of the land are sprinkled all over with bald-headed old sinners whose hair has been worn off by the constant friction of countless sermons that have been aimed at them and have glanced off and hit the man in the pew behind them. I don't need to read it again. It's just like, kaping, you know, it's like it's, the Lord just directed one right to our heads, right to, right to us, and our hard heads just like, kaping, get nothing. And we think of somebody else who needs to hear that message. And so he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It involves willingness, hunger. You know, this speaks in verse 11, says to the churches, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. An overcomer has this quality. They do not quit. Recently, I was at a pastor's luncheon, and we're just talking about Hebrews 12 and what it takes. What are some practical disciplines to endure? Because it speaks of endurance there in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. So we're talking about that, and, and, and that was just one thing that come out. You just don't quit. Logically, rationally, sometimes you want to quit. Even a foolish thought from the, from the pit of hell, so to speak, comes in. I just should just go get drunk. I've heard people say, I'm just, I'm just going to get drunk. I'm going to go have a one-night stand. I'm going to go. Weird thoughts among Christians because the enemy comes back and says, used to do it. One more time won't hurt. You'll, you'll, you won't even feel the pain right now if you can pour enough down you. Don't quit. Don't listen to that foolishness. Don't li- listen at all. You know, what's the second death? Well, the first death is this body. The second death is separation from God. That's the day of judgment for the non-Christian who has rejected God and now was eternally separated from, from God. So notice lastly, as we look at this, there's no specific correction given to this church like there will be to the other six churches. This is the only church that didn't get a corrective, but I have this against you. Persecution has a way of purifying you. If you've been slandered and accused and rejected because of your love for Jesus, you've experienced a small taste of persecution. You also know that it drove you to decide, I'm either going to turn towards Jesus or I'm going to turn away from him. It's a real simple crossroads. It's not multiple choice. In that difficulty, in that time, what's going on, are you drawing near to him or are you just turning away? You know, the apostles in chapter 6 of John, they faced a real difficult thing, and they even summarized it by saying to Jesus, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And the word is scandalizo. This is scandalous what you're saying unless we eat your flesh and drink your blood. Who can understand it? In verse 66 of John 6, and from that time forward, many, many disciples turned back and walked with him no more. They made that decision. But it goes on to say, and even Peter summarizes, when Jesus says, well, what about you? Where are you guys going to go? And Peter said this, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Beautiful answer. He didn't say, I get it. I studied this in seminary. I, I, I was at the, the Discipleship 101. We went over this. No, he just said, I have no clue what you're talking about. But I, I don't have any options. I'm not going anywhere else. You are God. Hopefully we can embrace that same simplicity. Practically speaking, persecution has a way of purifying your faith. And if 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 is true, and it is, 
all, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's not like you might, you will. Persecution, this adversity, this accusation, these various things. And I think there's a healthy reason for it because it purifies, it purges that carnal, residual, old nature from this faith that God has placed within us that we would look more and more to him. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would stand firm on the simple and sure foundation that we would really even as the song we sing would echo true from scripture, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And so Lord, may we stand firm because of your faithfulness your closeness. We lift up those we refer to even now as the persecuted church for many die every day. Many are beaten. Many are tortured. Many are brutally treated simply because they love you. In Afghanistan there's horrible things happening and we pray for your intervention. In Africa, in Asia, in China, so many places, Lord. We seem to be the ones that aren't experiencing it the same. And so, Lord, may we know our role to intercede and somehow support to seek your face in regards to persecution. And we pray, God, that you would give us the courage to stand for truth in our homes, in our workplace, in the places we go. May we stand just firm with kindness and compassion, with empathy and understanding, but firm on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for what you'll do. Thank you for your word tonight. May we walk away from here chewing and mulling on what you would reveal, meditating upon your word, modified and changed behavior because of your presence, to your glory and for our joy. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, we are going to be on verse 12. Well, actually, we'll be there Sunday, it looks like. So.